<clears throat> Beloved congregation, do you ever wonder what heaven is like? The Bible doesn't tell us all that much about heaven or about the new heavens and the new earth, probably because it's just so wonderful you can't fully describe it or explain it in words. But what it does say is breathtaking. One of the most detailed and lengthy descriptions of heaven can be found in the passage of Scripture that we read this morning, Revelation chapter 7, the verses 9 through 17. The Apostle John was in the very throne room of heaven. And from the previous chapter, chapter 6, we learn that the Lamb of God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, the exalted and risen Christ, has just opened the sixth seal. And by doing that, he unlocked another phase in the history of redemption that leads to the second coming of Christ. That's what each of the, each of the seals represent. And as he opened up this sixth seal, John looked and he saw... And he heard and felt a great earthquake. And he says the sun became as sackcloth of hair. And the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. He tells us then that the sky receded like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain an island was moved from its place. And he says that the kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves of the rocks of the mountains. And they cried to the rocks and to the mountains, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Following this, John saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth. And he saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice, and he said, Do not harm the earth the sea or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And John heard the number of those who were sealed, and it was 144,000, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. Now what we have here is a flashback. Before the four horsemen of the apocalypse are unleashed, and we read about that in the first part of chapter 6, John gives us a glimpse of the church militant, the church here on this earth, which is represented by the 144,000. And following this, he takes us into heaven, into the very throne room of God, where we catch a glimpse of the church triumphant, the saints who have died and are now in heaven, awaiting the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he saw was absolutely astounding. And in light of our brother Jack's passing, 
and the funeral this past Wednesday, I want to take with you a closer look at these verses and glean what comfort we can from them as we continue to mourn the passing of our dear friend and brother. I draw your attention this morning to the multitude before the throne. That's our theme, the multitude before the throne. And we'll consider, first of all, their description, and secondly, their blessedness. As John stands before the throne of God, he sees before him a great multitude. And you notice what John says about this multitude. He gives a rather detailed description. He, first of all, speaks of their number. He said, it is a great multitude which no one could number. Now, what we have here really is a fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis 22. And there God promised that Abraham's descendants would become as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And now we see that promise fulfilled. And you notice that John says that the number of these people is so great that no one can number them. Now what he means by that is not that they cannot be numbered because God knows every single one of them. God knows every name. He knows every individual. He knows every person. He knows their personalities, their characters, their histories, and everything else. Timothy says, or Paul rather says in 2 Timothy, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. God knows every single one of His people. And yet this is a multitude that no man can number. God can number them, but man cannot. It's a huge number of people. Secondly, he speaks of their variety. He says they're drawn from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. So there are people there from China, people from Africa, people from India, the United States, and Canada, and Europe, and South America, and even the tiniest little island nation in the South Pacific. Almost every race, every nationality is represented. We see here the reversal of the curse of Babel, don't we? At Babel, God came down and He confused the languages of the people so that they scattered abroad throughout the four corners of the world. But now God brings them all together again in one large international family. John also speaks of their position. He says they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Not some distance from the throne, not on the very periphery of heaven, but they're right there in front of the throne of God. And they're not kneeling. They're not lying prostrate with their faces in the dust. No, they're standing, John says. And standing is a a posture of triumph and a posture of honor. Andrew Bonar a great Scottish preacher of the 19th century, he made this comment. He said, To stand before the throne is next to sitting on it, the highest elevation. And it reminds us that the believers in heaven are in their glorified state. They're perfect in Christ. And as such, they may and do stand before the throne of the holy God. Fourthly, John comments on their appearance. He says they're clothed with white robes. White 
is the color of victory. So if you go back to chapter 6, verse 2, where you have the description of the four horsemen, the very first horseman is pictured as riding on a white horse because it symbolizes conquest and victory in conquest. And that's what we see here as well. These saints in heaven are pictured in white robes. And that indicates that they are victorious over sin and over death and over Satan through Jesus Christ their Lord. But this color white also represents purity. That's why a bride normally wears white or some shade of white when she, is, when she gets married. Because white is a symbol of purity. And that's the condition of the glorified saints in heaven. Their sins have been washed away. By the blood of Christ. We'll come back to that later on. And they have been clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so John portrays them as wearing these white robes. Fifthly, he comments on their activity. And you notice that this multitude does three things. First of all, they rejoice. They rejoice. And that's communicated by the palm branches that they are holding in their hands. Palm branches are a sign of joyous celebration. The people of Israel, when when they celebrated the Passover feast, they would, before that, they would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, and they would cut down palm branches, and they would build booths out of these palm branches. And before they did that, you remember how, how Jesus was, was making his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And again, they were waving palm branches in the air. and They were crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a sign of joyous celebration. And now the saints in heaven are no longer living in tabernacles. They're no longer going through the wilderness of this world because that's what the Feast of Tabernacles commemorated, how the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, but now they're wandering wilderness. Their wilderness wanderings have now come to an end. And they're in heaven with God. They're at rest with God. And so they rejoice. And they also shout, John says, they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They don't sing in measured tones. They didn't form a choir and practiced a song again and again and again. You know, those of you who have been in a choir, you know that when you learn a new piece of music, you have to, you have to practice it a lot. And the choir has to meet every, every week during some weeknight, and the director stands there and goes over the parts again and again and again and makes sure that you follow the piano, the organ, and you get the notes just right, and, and, and the harmony has to be right, and everything has to just come together. It takes a lot of practice, but these saints in heaven, they're not, they're not singing. They're not singing a, a masterful piece of music that takes hours and hours to practice. No, they, they are shouting. This is a spontaneous, unrehearsed shout to God and the Lamb. Again, Andrew Bonar says, this is the irrepressible shout rising and bursting forth from delivered men, from conquerors in a hard-fought field that have as yet no time to throw their feelings into elaborate song or harmony. Now, what are they shouting about? They're shouting about salvation. Salvation, they said, belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
This is what thrills them. This is what excites them. It is salvation. The salvation wrought by Christ, their Savior. They're so thrilled to be saved. They're so thrilled to be standing before the throne of God that they they shout and they cry out praises to their God. And as they do, we read in verses 11 and 12 that the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God and they said, Amen! Amen! So be it! They're listening to, to the shouts of the saints and they're saying, Yes, that's it! So be it! Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. They're listing some of the attributes of God and they're saying, Oh God, you are so worthy to be praised because of who you are. There's worship. There's praise. There's joy. And there's also service. Verse 15 says, They're before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. The glorified saints in heaven are servants. They are serving God. And they're serving God because their hearts are full of love towards God. Those who love will serve. They will serve one another, but they will ultimately serve God. And they do so, John says, day and night. Technically, there's no day and night in heaven. This is a manner of speaking. The idea is that they do so continually. They're like the priests in the Old Testament and the Levites. You know, they were always busy in the tabernacle, in the temple, always doing something, either sacrificing or making sure that the incense uh, was still burning and the table of showbread, the bread was being replaced on a regular basis and there was a lot of work to do in the temple, in the tabernacle. And they divided up the work among themselves in these various courses. Various families would take over a certain responsibility when in heaven the saints are all busy. What they're doing exactly we don't know. God certainly doesn't need people to wait on Him hand and foot because He is completely independent. He is completely self-sufficient. But they're doing something. And the tasks that they are doing are not burdensome. They're not boring. Oh no, this is delightful. This is fulfilling work. And they love to do this work. And they do it continually, day and night. Well, this is John's description of the great multitude in heaven. But he goes on, and he identifies exactly who these people are. It comes in verse 13. We read, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And in reply, John said, Sir, you know, or in other words, tell me, you know, tell me. And the elder said, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and wash their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now this elder says two things about these, about these people. He says they came out of great tribulation. Now there are some Bible-believing Christians who claim that this great tribulation refers to a period of intense suffering. Some say uh, three and a half years. Others say seven years just prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. But it's perhaps better to understand this as referring to all of human history. 
from the fall of Adam and Eve right up to the very last day when Christ comes again. Because throughout this entire period, believers suffer. This is a period of tribulation. And even today in the world in which we live, there are Christians who are suffering deeply for their faith. Not so much in Canada, thankfully, although it is happening here and it will happen even more. I'm convinced of that. When you look at what's going on in the world today, persecution is right around the corner in this country. Freedom of religion is going to be restricted severely. I'm convinced of it. And if you read your bulletin, I hope that many of you are able uh, to come and listen to Marty Moore from the Justice Center because he's a Christian lawyer and he knows what's going on. He sees what's happening in our courts and in our government and how, restri- how, how freedom of religion is slowly but surely being restricted. But there are people that are suffering. And this whole period is one of, of great tribulation, isn't it? It began already the fall of Adam and Eve in, in paradise, and God said that, that he would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There would be warfare between these two, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. There would be casualties in that warfare. The seed of the woman, God says, the seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. There'd be casualties. There'd be people who will suffer greatly for the cause of Christ, and that's exactly what happened. When you read the history of redemption throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, how many people have not suffered for the cause of the gospel? And when you read the pages of church history, you look at the early period of church history, how many many early saints did not die a martyr's death and during the period of the Reformation, and we could go on and on. This whole period is characterized by tribulation. Paul in 1 Thessalonians commends the Thessalonians for their patience and faith in all their persecutions and tribulations that they endure. And Paul said, Someplace else, that all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We may not be thrown into prison. We may not have our heads severed from our bodies, but we will suffer some form of persecution. It could be anything. Any cost that you have to pay for the cause of following Jesus Christ is a form of persecution. Well, these saints that John sees have come through this tribulation. They came through it. That means they didn't turn their back on Christ. They didn't apostatize. They didn't say, that's it. You know, I can't handle this anymore. I'm just going to do what the world tells me. I'm going to stop worshiping the Lord. I'm going to renounce my faith in Jesus Christ. No, they persevered to the very end. They remained faithful to the very end. And here they are standing before the throne. They came through great tribulation. But secondly, and perhaps even more significantly, John says that this great multitude washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That seems kind of strange, doesn't it? They made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We don't normally wash garments in blood, especially not white garments, because blood stains. If I put a drop of blood on a white Bedsheet, for example, it will stay there forever unless I immediately treat it with some powerful detergent cleansing agents. But that's not true for the blood of Jesus Christ because His blood washes. It cleanses. It washes away all sin so that not a trace of it is left. And that's what He did for this multitude in heaven. He washed away their sins. 
But you notice the wording that John uses. He says, they washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Both of them are true, isn't it? He washed them, but they washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They did this themselves. Now, they didn't do this apart from God's grace because apart from God's grace, we'll never want to wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb. We'll see no need for washing our robes in the blood of the Lamb, nor will we. It's only as we're drawn by the Spirit of God, it's only as the Spirit of God reveals to us how filthy our garments are by nature and creates within us this this, this desire to have those garments cleansed in the blood of Christ and draws us to Christ that that our garments will be washed. And that's what happened with these people. They were born again by the Word and Spirit of God. Their eyes were opened to see their sin, their filthiness and their need of a Savior. And they were given the grace to repent of their sins and to seek the Lord's face and to come to Him with their filthy robes and say, Lord, cleanse me, wash me, make me pure and white as the snow. In fact, this is the way, this is is the only reason why they could stand before the throne of God. Left to themselves, there's no way any person can stand before a holy God. But when our robes are washed in the blood of Christ, we can because then all the filthiness is taken away and God doesn't see us anymore for who and what we are in and of ourselves, but He sees us for who and what we are in Jesus Christ. This is the multitude that John sees in heaven. How wonderful to think that even as we're sitting here in our pews this morning, here in Langley, that there is, and we're just a small number, but there is a great multitude in heaven that no one can number. And they're all standing before the throne worshiping God. And Jack is there too. I was thinking about that as I was preparing for this morning's sermon, what is he seeing? What is he doing? You know, we ask that question every time a loved one passes away. And this is what he's doing. This is what he's seeing. And he's experiencing a joy and a fulfillment that, that is impossible for us to, to fully explain. And if, and if he had the choice to come back down to this earth, And to be with his loved ones again, he would say, oh, thanks, but no thanks. This is where I need to be. This is where I want to be. Right here, before my God. This is the inheritance of the saints, beloved. Is it your inheritance too? Will you join this innumerable multitude of people standing before the throne of God when you die? You know, there's two, and there's two multitudes of people in the last day. There will be, of course, the saints of God, but there will also be the unbelieving and the unrepentant. And that will be a vaster number. You think that you can't count the number of the saints who are going to be in heaven. You won't be able to count the number of unbelievers that will be in hell. Because it's a huge number. It's a terrible thing. Few there will be who find the way to eternal life. 
you, Jesus said. So you think about that. If there's an innumerable multitude of people in heaven, what a vast number of people there will be in hell. Will you be among them? Which multitude will you be part of? That's the question you need to ask. And, and how this should create within us such a burning desire and zeal to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to others who do not know him. In this community, here in Willoughby, in Langley, how many people there are in these, in these apartment units, these condo units surrounding the church who have never heard the gospel. And if they have heard some things, it's so twisted and it's so wrong and it's so inaccurate. We have a message, beloved. We have a glorious message to share with people who are heading to an everlasting eternity. Are you sharing it? Our desire should be to see the great multitude in heaven be even greater than it actually is. And our, heart desi- our heart's desire is that you would also be among that number. And so still today, the call of the gospel goes forth. And the call of the gospel is, come to the Lamb. Wash your robes in the Lamb that you too might be saved. Well, if you are one of that number, then you will enjoy great blessedness. And that brings me to my second point. John concludes his description of the great multitude by describing the various blessings that they will enjoy to all eternity. He does so in verses 15 to 17. He says, first of all, they will enjoy fellowship with God. John says, God will dwell among them. Now, that's always been God's design, hasn't it? God's desire has always been to dwell among men. So before man fell into sin, that's what God did. He came down from the garden in the cool of the day and he walked and talked with Adam. Later on, after he called his people, after he delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt and they were in the wilderness, he instructed Moses to build a tabernacle and he instructed him to put that tabernacle right in the center of the camp with all the tribes of Israel around the tabernacle. He wanted to dwell among his people. Ultimately, he dwelt among his people in the person of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And still today, he dwells among us through his Holy Spirit who takes up his abode in our hearts when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's always been God's desire. It's always been his will to dwell among his people. And in heaven, that will be perfect. In heaven, he will be their God. And they will be his people and they will dwell together. And there won't be any sin anymore that will break that fellowship, that will cause God to hide his face from us, that will all be gone because they'll be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There will be no walls between us and God. We'll be at perfect peace with God and enjoy perfect fellowship with God to an everlasting eternity. Secondly, John says they will enjoy the care of God. He says they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. The people to whom John was writing, people in the first century A.D. knew a thing or two about hunger and thirst and the debilitating effects of a hot sun because they lived in a hot 
climate and so many believers still know these things today, especially those who live in very poor and underdeveloped countries. But in heaven, there will be no deprivation of any kind. There will be no sickness. There'll be no pain. There'll be no hardship. There'll be no trials. There will be an abundance of everything that we need. And John gives the reason why. He says, for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. Reminds us, doesn't it, of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. David compares the Lord to a shepherd who provides for him in all of his needs. And that's a foreshadowing, isn't it? Of how the Lord will provide for his people in their need. In glory to come, he will shepherd them, John says. And he will lead them to living fountains of waters. What, is, what are those living fountains of waters? That's well, a picture of Christ, isn't it? He's the source of all true refreshment. Here's the one who stood up on the last day of the feast and said, if anyone thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He abundantly supplies the thirst of his people here in this earth and he will abundantly supply it also in glory to come. One commentator says that the saved will always thirst for God and that thirst will be satisfied. All that they need will be found in him. Finally, John says they will enjoy the comfort of God. John says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is perhaps one of the most tender and touching pictures in the entire Bible. God wiping away the tears from the eyes of his people. And those of you who are parents can readily identify with this picture, I'm sure. You may remember the days when your children were very young and they would fall and they would skin their knees and they would, they would be crying and all they want is mom or dad and they come into the house and they're crying and there's tears all over their face and all they want is dad or mom to pick them up and hug them and that's what mom and dad do. We grab them, we hold them in our arms, we look at their owie, we say, oh, it's okay. Maybe you put a Band-Aid on it, and then you, you gently, tenderly, you wipe away those tears of the eyes of your little children and how comforting that is to the child. The child knows and understands that mom and dad loves him and cares for him. This is the picture here. God wiping away their tears. It raises the question, is there sorrow in heaven then? No, there is no sorrow in heaven there's only joy, but there is memory. And not all memories will be pleasant. You remember the saints under the altar in a previous chapter, how they're, they're under the altar and they're crying day and night to God and they're saying, how long, O Lord, will it not be until you avenge our blood upon those who have, who have killed us? They're asking the Lord to avenge their blood. They remember what happened to them? They remember that they died for the cause of Christ and now they ask that their blood be avenged, not for themselves, of course, but for the glory of God. And so you have here too, you have the saints in heaven and they're there and, and, and they're remembering things. They remember the painful things. The times that they sinned against God. The, the, the life that they lived before they came to faith in God and the things they had to suffer for the cause of Christ. 
And God so tenderly, so sweetly wipes away every tear from their eyes. One commentator says in the end, when the eternal destination has been reached, there will be no more tears. Every loss will then have been repaid with interest. Every grief answered with joy. Every longing fulfilled in glory. And as we look into the eyes of God, it will be His own loving hand that wipes the tears from our eyes. Oh, is that not wonderful? Is that not something to look forward to, child of God? What grief are you experiencing now? Is it the grief of a love, law, the loss of a loved one? It could, it could be anything. There are so many things in this life that cause us to grieve and to sorrow. I tell you that in heaven, all those sorrows will vanish. They will all disappear. God himself will wipe away the tears from our eyes. Oh, is that not something to look forward to? Do you not all look forward to this? Is this not not something that you desire? You know, God created us, the Bible says, with eternity in our hearts. Because of this, we long for more than what this world offers us. There's a lot of good things in this life and in this world, but it doesn't matter how much you have, you're always looking for more because it never satisfies. And God put that in us, created within us the sense of there has to be something more than this. He creates within his people this longing for God. Augustine said, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. This is what we desire. This is what we long for, to be at rest with God. And one day, that will come to pass. We who are in Christ will rest with him. Are you restless Today, are you dissatisfied with this world and everything that it has to offer? Is there written on your soul this deep, aching void that nothing can fill but God Himself? Go to the Lord. He alone can fill that empty void. He alone can give you meaning and purpose in life and the grace you need to attain it and to live out of it to His glory. And He's so willing so willing. Listen to him as he says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Oh, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come unto me here and your soul shall live. God is calling us this morning out of his word. He's calling us out of the world into fellowship with his son through faith in Jesus Christ. He takes no pleasure in our death. He takes no pleasure in casting sinners into eternal damnation and hell. No, his desire is rather that we repent and believe on the name of the Son of God and receive everlasting life and that we would join in that great multitude in heaven to praise and to bless his name forever. May God make it so. Amen.